This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Welcome, listeners, to another Voices of Vapors podcast where we discuss tobacco harm reduction and mostly electronic cigarettes, but all aspects of it. As many of you know, THR products have been, have been subject to local, state, federal um, regulations and taxations and actually a prohibition in some markets. Even though approximately 3 million vapors have used e-cigarettes to quit smoking combustible um, cigarettes. So today I've got one of the most recognized females in the industry and she's insane with all the work that she does. I've got Amy Netherton, who many of you guys might know as Amy Lane. Um, but she's the, va- the Vice President of Domestic and International Sales and Marketing and Regulatory Affairs Director for Flavor Revolution. It's a highly recognized e-liquid flavor supplier. She's a membership director for Vapor Technology Association. She works with the state association's membership to help grow, um, build growth and just gen- general organization. She's also President and Executive Director of the Indiana Smoke-Free Alliance. It's a state advocacy organization. She's a co-owner of Alchemist Vapor Shop. She's CEO of Trans- Transcendent Enterprises Consulting Group. She's got a degree in physiology from Purdue University, and she's an active paramedic. Like I said, she does a lot. Amy really does bring a unique set of skills to create positive dialogues between scientists, doctors, politicians, and other professionals, and she's done a lot of work, and I have to always give her credit. We'll talk more about what she did in Indiana. But Amy, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. I'm I'm always glad to get on and and talk to anybody about vaping. You know me, Lindsay. (laughs) I know. No. Yeah. So, okay. It's always my first question. Um, How did you find yourself involved with vaping and also... um, I think it's really important for people to understand that, like, because there's so many people like you, like, once you get involved with it, you become so passionate about that, about it. How did you find yourself doing this? That's exactly right. So, um, actually, this story comes from a humble beginning as a paramedic on the streets. And uh, I had a PD patient that we went on quite frequently. He had pretty bad symptoms and his asthma portion of it would light up and we'd have to go out and treat him. And this is almost a weekly basis. All of a sudden, I didn't see the patient anymore, and I honestly thought that he had passed away. And then one day, we ran on him again, and I says, well, well, I haven't seen you in so long. And he said, well, that's because I quit smoking, and I started vaping. And I'm like, no kidding. So at the time, yeah, at the time, uh, you know, IU Health and Lutheran and Percy Hospitals here in Indiana, we were going through a big uh, no-smoking push anyways, right? And so I always felt really bad about smoking. Um, you know, riding on the ambulance because it it just doesn't make any sense, right? Here I am telling patients, hey, don't smoke, and then I (laughs) reek of cigarette smoke. So, and I've been told that, too, you know, when I was a smoker. So that really is what spawned it, is that, wow, this really did work for him, and he was very severe as far as the COPD exacerbations. And like I said, we went on him every week. So that's initially how I got started into vaping, Um, and then eventually transitioned fully from smoking into vaping. So that's kind of my, it's an actual, it's a health story. So I just thought it would work. Yeah, the personal stories I think are, I know that a lot of, you know, regulators will put them as anecdotal evidence, but it's like, well, it's positive anecdotal evidence, and they all kind of say the same thing when you add them all up. Right. And then your second part of your question, you know, how do you become passionately involved in that, Probably, 
I think passionately is an understatement for me. I think obsessive compulsive is more, <laughs> more the term anymore for me today. Um, but I originally got involved in it because I was, just, as, you, as you announced, that uh, we own Alchemist Paper Shop and Lounge, my husband and I, in Indiana. And uh, back in 2015, we were uh, a part of a group uh, that was just uh, a grassroots effort there in Indiana, and then it be formalized into something else. But anyways, we were all at the state house in 2015, and we were hearing all these horrific lies um, at this one particular Senate committee hearing. And before we knew it, we were bent over the barrel as businesses. All the lies were believed throughout the state house, and we had a really nasty e-liquid monopoly law that that decimated the Indiana industry, including our business. And when I talk about decimating, I'm talking 65% attrition um, in in businesses and over 70% profit losses um, throughout 2015 to 2017. So, you know, that really gets you fired up. (laughs) And that's really what happened. It's just how in the world did we get this way? What happened? How does this work? How does this engine work? So being a scientist, I'm a big why person. So instead of saying, why does this cell um, interact with this system and how does this uh, chemical cascade and, and have this cascading effect from the physiology side of it, I wanted to know how one person could tell this lie and it spread throughout the entire General Assembly and they bought it. Yeah. How did that work? Well, so how did that's you- what lit me up. Okay, yeah, and so and that now I know, yeah. So that was the Indiana Smoke Free Alliance that you guys um, kind of formed, I guess, in after this bill got passed. That it pretty much what it created a monopoly. It was only like three. How many companies could actually um, sell? So the interesting part of that was, um, so six companies six, okay. actually were able to sell. There were six permits that were given given away, okay, okay or, or granted these six permits. But only four companies actually functioned. So, and I think the other two, we, we speculate that the other two were thrown in there just simply for placeholders because the other four were located in Indiana. So they didn't want it to make, the General Assembly didn't want it to make it look like, oh my gosh, we're only favoring Indiana companies, right? So they had two out-of-state companies, but they never produced anything, oh, by wow. the way. These other two, one from Florida, one from Ohio, never produced anything reportable ever so it was really truthfully in practical sense there was four companies one to the north one to the central and one to the south and then one another one i think he he was stayed kind of in between uh the north and south so very conveniently located (laughs) for distribution by the way (laughs) (laughs) oh wow okay so how did you guys how were you guys able to get this reversed um and how you know like and how i guess it took two years for you to get it reversed. Um, what did you have to deal with? Like, you know, what was right. the opposition like um, trying? You know, I mean, I'm sure for public health groups, that was a big win creating this monopoly. How, you know, can you explain to our listeners some of the sure. things you had to deal with? Sure. So the monopoly was created by three sections. So the first section, uh, oddly enough, was a casino group. And I assume, you know, we all assume they were the money backers, right? So, um, there was a casino group involved, and then there was um, a lobbyist group involved, and then there was also a security firm involved. And that's really what the hang-up was with the Indiana law, was that you had to pass through all these gateways 
and this this the only security company, by the way, in the entire world that could handle this type of, of security that they required in the law happened to be the ones that were hooked up with the other two, um, you know, a, as the FBI investigation kind of overturned and also great work by the Indianapolis Star and the IBJ Indianapolis Business Journal here. here. I can't say enough about those guys. They really exposed a lot of the dirty stuff that was going on behind the scenes. But yes, we had extreme help. So how we got it overturned? Well, in 2015 to 16, um, I, I spent that entire year really learning about that system. How do we get bent over the barrel, right? So in mm-hmm. 2016, we formed Indiana Smoke Free Alliance. We hired an amazing, amazing public affairs team ourselves, and that's Craig DeVault. And um, they had the influence in the state house. They have tons of influence there. Great lobby team. Um, and they were able to get us a champion um, of a bill. And, and <laughs> believe me, after the FBI starts snooping around <laughs> senators and uh, offices, they, they really have a will to uh, change the law pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. So, And that's really how we were approached was, you know, hey, so we hear that, you know, you're the vapor experts. We probably should come to you. And so with the help of the Vapor Technology Association, I immediately called Tony and Jake and said, hey, we have a, a champion we have a real live opportunity to change this bill. Will you help me bill right? And they did, and the rest is history. Oh, yes. So. And how much have your sales gone up now and, you know, after getting it reversed? You said you mentioned that 70% profit losses um, between 2015 and 2017. Uh, I will say that the, um, the companies that survived all of that, which is less than, 30, you know, probably less than 40% of us, over 60% of us got wiped out almost immediately, um, especially manufacturers, because we had approximately 27 manufacturers in the state of Indiana. And so that went down to four, obviously. Oh, wow. And so um, a lot of manufacturers didn't come back or some of them did, right? So a lot of us switched to retail. So I would say we're just now recovering, to be honest. I know it's been two years later, um, since the, the financial impact, but that's how long it's taken us because unfortunately what had happened in that interim is that all of our customers, because we couldn't sell certain types of e-liquids. So if you weren't hooked up as a manufacturer with these four companies, then we couldn't sell you in Indiana. So for example, Naked 100 at the time was not hooked up with one of the companies initially. And so Everybody that wanted Naked 100, we couldn't get it. Our customers couldn't get it. So all we heard was, well, that's okay. We'll just go, we'll just go online. Yeah. So we have spent the last year recovering and trying to pull our, our customers back into our shops because online just decimated us as well during that year. Yeah. So we had it kind of coming from all sides. So when you talk about numbers, I would say, so let's talk about the real numbers. So it went from four manufacturers and now we have 109 I think 176 manufacturers now in Indiana that have e-liquid licenses so that's a an amazing amazing number yep. so we have lots of lots of other choices we still have to stick to the restrictions of what um, these, we have to have somebody that's permitted so we can't sell e-liquid that's not going through a permit okay. um, so that's still a thing but Again, four to 176, it's a hell of an accomplishment. Yeah. And then when it comes to 
trying to, to growth rate, I think everybody is now seeing a net positive. When I talk to ISFA members over the last six months, they are now seeing net positives okay. um, out of their bank accounts. And we're finally getting out of the red and in, into the black in 2018. But it took us, I mean, it took them all of what, you know, four months of a session to make that decision. And it's taken business two years to yeah. recover. I mean, that's how decimating these type of results can be. Yeah. So. It would be a good, actually. I wonder mm-hmm. if anybody's, has anybody had, like, broken, that would be a really good report to give to members. Like, this is how much money you lost. This is how much tax revenue you lost, you know, and because you decided to do this. Right. And, you know, give it to other right. states. Do not do this. <laughs> Look at what happens. Right. Right. Uh, ISFA has done that. And, in fact, we also reported that to the federal government as well. So, Indiana Smoke-Free Alliance, we had written uh, flavor, you know, remember the flavor ANPRM responses, mm-hmm. and that's probably what our biggest message was to the flavor ANPRM response is that when you start just banning something completely, business starts to suffer. And so we did turn in those numbers to um, the FDA when they they asked for the ANPRM. We turned in how much profit losses were were made, how many businesses were lost, how much tax revenue was actually <laughs> disappeared, and how much black market um, actually come to the surface as well. So we yeah. have those metrics, um, thankfully, from our members, and we can do those projections at ISFA. So it was a great piece of information to give the FDA because, you know, with all the federal government talking about flavor bans and, of course, flavor bans throughout the state houses going into 2019, People just don't understand. They think it's a good idea, but they don't understand practically what happens on paper um, and into the practical application of the world that these businesses simply shut down. They yeah. cannot compete. Yeah. And, and the black market just thrives. Yep. Right. Yep. Black and online markets. The Heartland Institute has ramped up our video production in 2018, and we wanted to let you know about the first two weekly series you should be checking out on Heartland's YouTube channel. The first is called Two Minutes with Tim, starring new Heartland Institute president Tim Hulskamp. Dr. Hulskamp weighs in on the hot news story of the week from a free market perspective, or an issue that's important to advancing our shared mission of smaller government and more individual liberty. Tim has commented on the fake polar bear scare, the left's attempt to take over the internet via net neutrality, school choice advancements across the country, defending the Second Amendment, and more. Heartland is also producing a new series called Flashes of Freedom, which applies free market principles to real-world situations. Videos we've already produced have featured freedom champions, such as Steve Forbes, Matt Kibbe, John Stossel, Dan Proft, Joe Walsh, John Lott, and more. Go to YouTube and search for the Heartland Institute or go right to Heartland Tube and subscribe to our channel. You'll get a notification of every new release so you never miss a timely and professionally produced episode of our new video series. Go to YouTube and search for Heartland Institute today. All right, now we've brought up flavors, mm-hmm. so I think it's a perfect time to move into this. Let's talk about um, flavor revolution. Um, and can you explain to the listeners who might not be vapors themselves why flavors are so important and also some of the things that you guys have to work on this year as far as FDA regulations, um, specifically the HPHC, harmful or potentially harmful constituents that you guys have to send in to go to FDA? Yeah, sure. Um, So we're a little bit different. We're a a supplier and a manufacturer. So things work a little bit differently for us, but I'll get into that in a minute. But why we think flavors are so important, it's not just because I I work for a flavor company, but I think flavors are important. And that's what we see in our customer base as well. So what we see in our trend lines, 
um, and what we see and we, what types of flavors that we're selling. We, we sell a lot of fruity flavors, a lot of candy-like flavors. Those are the top sellers. You know, tobacco is at the bottom of the list, to be yeah. honest, um, from our metrics. And why I think it's so important is because we see that success be- through our customers. And we talk to our customers and our clients, and they tell us that this is absolutely important um, in order to make the switch. And I know that a lot of people can't talk about that as businesses. The FDA prohibits you to talk about the health, the net health benefit or any type of benefit of switching. But as a flavor supplier, we can see that. We can absolutely see that flavors do matter when it comes to smokers. It's just like flavoring. And I think that's what kind of, with my boss, he's so passionate about this because it makes sense to him on an every flavor aspect, right? So if you had, one time he gave me an example, and he says, you know, if you had a cheeseburger and that's all you've been thinking about going towards lunchtime, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to eat my cheeseburger from, let's say, uh, Red Robin or, or somewhere, that would be one of your favorite burger joints. And then you get there and the thing has no flavor at all. I mean, it's just, it doesn't taste like hamburger meat. It doesn't taste like cheese. Can't taste the bacon. None of that. We are all flavor driven. So if we want to eat our food like that and, you know, why would we ever want to do that? And that's that's what confuses him. And he's like, why does this ever make sense? Why does flavoring, why are we arguing about a flavor component at all? you need flavor in your life to be successful or to get satisfaction out of it. And that's truly how we see it. That flavor revolution is that when you add flavor to vaping products, it gives the smoker that satisfaction and pushes them onto switching, or at least that's what we hear from our clients. So that's why we think it's so important. You can't live life without flavor. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Right. And, just, and I live with just tobacco, mint, and menthol flavors. What's, what was the purpose of, exactly. what's the purpose of, I guess, quitting smoking? You know, it's like, well, I might as well go back to smoking cigarettes, especially if you got like an open mod system. It's a lot easier to go buy a pack of cigarettes if, you know, than it is, you know, you need to change right. all your stuff around. That's right. And that's, and that's what we ultimately saw in Indiana is that, again, when you take away choices, you simply just drive them back to smoking or drive them to the black market or they will, consumers will get their products another way. And so that's what we stress to the FDA all the time. Do you want this regular, where's that balance that you keep talking about in highly regulating a product versus letting somebody make a personal choice, right? Yeah. So because if you don't let them make personal choices, they're going to do it anyways. They're just not, and and so what way do you want it? Do you want it safe, not safe? You know, we all hear those nightmares about people producing e-liquid in their back room. They have highly, um, you know, concentrated nicotine around their two-year-old sitting down on the table. I mean, we all hear those stories, and those are real. And I I think the FDA really kind of leaves those things out. They take it as, oh, well, if we clamp it down so hard, then then we won't have to worry about that. Actually, it encourages it to tell you the truth. And there's metrics on that as well. And um, so that brings me into your your next question about uh, what we've been working on at, at Flavor Revolution. And we too submitted a comment to the AMPRN and we highlighted a couple um, harmfully, potentially harmful constituents. Uh, the main ones being the ones that we take out of our flavoring automatically. So that would be um, AP, AP, which is 2,3, apensdione, and then diacetyl, um, acetylene and acetylaldehyde. 
So we start with those four chemicals, and it's not because we think that they're highly dangerous, but when reading Dr. Farsalino's study back in 2014, it really kind of got our scientists thinking that if we have the ability to take out certain chemical constituents that could possibly lead to questions, right? Not saying dangers, but questions. Remember the whole AP diacetyl thing back in 2015 through 16? So we kind of looked at that and we were trying to be more proactive as a company and taking those out. And so when somebody formulates with us, there's not going to be as much concern um, when they're going to have to prove their HPHCs in 2019, which is absolutely coming up. And I think that's the, that's the biggest concerns that we are seeing right now is, um, I don't know if there's just a a denial in general. It's like when I talk to e-liquid companies, I'm not saying that they are not aware of the HPHC list. I just don't know if they understand exactly what that list entails um, and how to to handle that list on an e-liquid side. Like, how do you measure it? I mean, I've heard everything. I heard something ridiculous um, from a well-known lab, you know, at a conference recently. And that was that they... They said, well, no, we're not going to have to do emissions. And, and I, I guess I'm not understanding that. There's, there's a lot of predatory lab stuff going on out there right now. People are being sold a lot of bad bill of goods, in my opinion. And um, so just to, in my personal scientific opinion, this is just my opinion alone, you have to do tox and you have to do emissions. Yep. You cannot do just the e-liquid and test it and say, oh, it's AP and diacetyl-free. We're all good for the FDA. That's never going to be a thing. FDA is very, very clear in their guidance about how how they want you to a certain degree. They're very clear on what they want. Now, not so clear on how they want your toxin emissions done, but they are clear about toxin emissions. So um, <clears throat> I think from a manufacturer's standpoint of flavoring, we're seeing a lot of inconsistency. We're seeing a lot of people confused. A lot of manufacturers don't know what to do, and that concerns us a yeah. lot. Um, going into 2019 with the HPHCs. We also see labs filling up very quickly. And we also see people just just not doing anything. They're like, well, I'll worry about that later. And um, as you know, Lindsay, that's, I think that those are the concerns that we start to see in general when it comes to regulatory affairs. Back in uh, November, the letter that was sent out to the one company Um, And I I think you and I talked about this at the conference. What we found surprising about that letter was it was not only just that you're marketing to children, was that they absolutely tracked and were able to tell that company, hey, you didn't put your products on the market. These products were not on the market prior to 8.8. So they are watching those things. And I think people have this misconception that, oh, I'm good till 2022. There are gateways that you're going to have to step through. And HPHC, is, it's a huge gateway. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. No. From a scientific perspective, it's huge. Well, there was a study, too, that some um, a, a manufacturer in Minnesota did recently, uh, Baker White, that actually found with that FDA raid that they did that a lot of those um, – products were actually they couldn't be on market without having um the uh, pre-market tobacco application because with the time that they actually came in and it was really kind of interesting to see it's like wow um what are you going to stop them i mean you're coming down really hard on flavors and everything but this is a complete violation of what you know the standards that you set out so that's correct and they're not really that's I, great in that in that sorry go on go ahead Sorry. Well, I'm just amazed by no, it. I was, I was saying, that's correct. It's crazy because they're, they're on this witch hunt of flavors. 
And at Vapor Technology Association, just like with Indiana Smoke Free Alliance and my personal belief, this is not a flavor debate. This is a marketing debate. It's never been a flavor debate, in my opinion. It's all about how the product has been presented and and kids have picked it up and, and we didn't make good choices in the e-liquid industry. Um, I don't think that they've made good marketing choices up until now. And I think that, that, that that's all catching up to them. But to, to negate, to concentrate so much on the flavor debate and not do exactly what you said is that they have enforcement tools. They have things that they can do right now, right now, yeah. that they're not doing is appalling. No, exactly. It's it's and and also like the fines that they could get out of that. You know, I mean, it's like really. I what I read that like every compliance check costs like FDA like two thousand dollars or something. It was some insane number that this audit did of it. So it's like, well, why aren't you doing anything about this if you really do care about money? But it's also a weird thing with the flavors. If you think about it, like the jewel, you know, the big jewel, 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 jewel. This jewel's marketing has always been slick. Um, somebody mentioned it. Jewel actually kind of markets their product the same way that cigarettes. Look, there's no, you know, crazy pictures on it. Their flavors. I mean, they got a cucumber flavor. I mean, people are vaping a vegetable flavor pretty much. Um, so I, the 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 companies that they kind of went after, they don't even really have a marketing issue too because they're not really attracting children based off of their advertising. They don't have cookies and cream or you know right. Captain Crunch or sweet tarts or whatever on it. So it is. I think the yeah. Go yeah, on. and I think Jewel is. I, I think that's just an unusual, um, an unusual case scenario, you know. And from what I, what I know about the situation is just that unfortunately kids got a hold of this, you know. And yeah. and as I've told people a thousand times, I don't know why the Tide Pod generation got a hold of it. They could have gotten a hold of a Mark Ten. They could have gotten a hold of an open system. Anything. They could have booked anything. Yeah. And that's the unfortunate case with Jewel. And I'm not saying that I completely feel so sorry for them because, you know, they, they, they had some time to react. There are some things that I think company-wise and decision-wise they could have done better at. But also, I'm not in their shoes either. And I think that's what I always try to remind people is that I don't have the CDC, the FDA, um, Matt Myers at Campaigns for Tobacco-Free Kids, and every Volvo driving soccer mom at a PTA meeting after me either. So, you know, it, it is a precarious situation, but I think it's a unique situation. It's not the typical situation, I would say, in the vapor industry, what Jewel is going through. Yeah. So Absolutely. my personal opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So now we're going to talk about Vapor Technology Association. I know you, you, you've been there for about a year now, right? Over a year. Yep. Yep. Okay. A year. Almost a year. Almost uh-huh. a year. Yeah, I remember you telling me last year about it, and I was like, you're going to have another job. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so... Can you talk a little bit about your role there and then what you guys are working on? Um, you guys held a really great conference in Austin, very informative. I thought your plan was awesome, but maybe our listeners who weren't there can um, learn a little bit more about what you guys are doing. Sure. Um, so my role at the Vapor Technology Association is membership director. And so I was picked for that role um, and, and very, very, very honored to work with VTA. I was so shocked when Tony wanted to actually enter into um, serious talks about me working with them. And um, I absolutely love it. And what I do is I do membership growth because what I noticed um, and what Tony and Jake noticed as well is when it came to state associations, they didn't really have, some of them are not really as organized as as we would like them to, or as any organization should be, right? So they don't have, uh, maybe if someone only had six or seven members, they kind of stalled out for a while. 
some of the foundational things weren't in place, like bylaws or how to even accept new, you know, dues or membership and how to grow the association. So with the, my experience with Indiana Smoke Free Alliance, we grew 436% in one year. So those metrics were impressive to VTA, and they knew that I knew a lot of people in the community, and I, I knew how to do boots-on-the-ground work. So that's really what I do is I help trade associations any way I can. So when it comes to fundraising ideas, when it comes to anything like that, um, you know, they're absolutely thrilled. So, and I apologize. My kids are in the background. We should have mentioned that too. Oh, she's a mom as well, guys. Okay. <laughs> she's a super woman. <laughs> I know. Um, it's crazy. So- it's absolutely crazy. Mom's, mom job is easier though. I tell you, because you know, it's pretty much a dictatorship. Go do your chores. Go yep. do this. <laughs> yep. Clean my house. <laughs> it's not so easy in the vapor industry, right? Yeah. Right. Get um, your chores done or you don't get your allowance, you know, yeah. that type of um, stuff. But yeah. um, when it comes to the plan of VTA and what we're trying to accomplish and trying to achieve, I don't think the word try is even there in our vocabulary anymore. I think it's the proven grounds, right? Yeah. So when we talked about in, in – June of 2018, we had our national conference in Washington, D.C., and we talked about the 50-state defense program, and we touched on that, and we said that we were going to roll that out. Well, everybody that attended the Austin conference got to see exactly how powerful that was and what that meant. So when we talked about helping state trade associations, um, that's exactly what we did. Between June and December, we lobbied up. Um, we do have lobby representation in, in 42 states in the United States now. We are working, and most of that comes, the lobbyists come from working with the state associations. So that was kind of Jake's job, is that if an association didn't have a lobbyist in place, then VTA would help them find one. That's one of the services that we offer state associations. And um, mine was then to collaborate and, and be able to pay for that lobbyist, right? So how do we pay for that? And through a wonderful program um, that VTA created, which is the 50-state defense program, most of these states were able to ask for, in fact, full lobby funding for the 2019 session, and VTA was able to grant that. And I don't know what other state association, when it comes to vapor um, technology anyways, in our sector, that is able to do that, that has the financial means to literally pay for somebody's lobbyist for the entire 2019 session. And that's, that's what's quite impressive to me is that VTA sets a goal. Um, we say this is what we're going to do, and we accomplish it every single time. So, in my opinion. But, of course, I'm biased, right? No, <laughs> so. no, I have always been impressed with um, VTA. Tony is, is awesome. Jake's awesome. He's one of the smartest guys, I think, that knows so much about state capitals. It's uh it's stupid, actually. I feel a little bit bad for him sometimes. I know. <laughs> I know. I do, too. They, poor Jake. He works like a slave. God dang it. But he loves it. He's he's passionate about it. He loves it. And he sees sometimes, and, and that's probably what I love working about the, with the VTA so much, is that there's so much emotion that goes into vaping, right? I mean, yeah. our businesses are at stake. We're not understanding why. Um, the federal government and even our state houses or local municipalities are wanting to take that right away from us yeah. or our business models away. And Jake takes a lot of that emotion out of it, and he knows how to craft legislation, and, and they know how to kind of go at it in, in a political way, in the language that these politicians understand. And that's, sometimes, that's definitely sometimes not the language that us vapors understand, for sure. So I really love having that 
that other side of Jake, that professional go-getter. And, and if anybody thinks that he's, he's a pushover, that dude is a pit bull. I'm telling you, yeah. he's a pit bull and you don't want him to bite you because no. <laughs> he'll hold on and he won't let go. So he's, uh, he's definitely, you know, he's amazing. I love working with Jake and side by side with him. And that's, that's really what the team is about at DTA. It's all about a team and after one goal. And so when Tony handles like the national stuff, right, Tony and Brittany and the rest of the board, um, it's amazing to see what they do, right? I mean, yeah. they met with the ter- with the Federal Trade Commission recently. They've met with the FDA several times, the White House staff. I mean, and Scott Gottlieb himself. I mean, who does that, yeah. right? Professional associations do that, in my opinion. And that's that's why I think that the VTA, we, we set ourselves apart um, from a lot of the other associations. And it's not that the other one, you know, everybody else is bad. It's just we, we have a goal. We have goals in mind, and we achieve those goals monthly, yearly, time and time and time again. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what I think. Now, okay, and I, I would like you bring it up, too, because I, I get and, um, a lot of people, you know, when I'm on with, the, you know, especially the people in the associations, a lot of people have this idea that lobbyists are bad. Can you explain to listeners why lobbyists are so vital for a lot of industries, but especially the vaping industry? Um. I, I was told once, um, well, this was obviously my lobby experience with a really bad lobbyist who sold bad information to the Indiana State House. So I almost had that kind of impression as well, that lobbyists, you know, oh, gosh, they're just influencers and, you know, special interests and all this other stuff. But actually, working with the lobby team of Craig DeVault, what they have taught me, and then also working with Jake as well, is that they've taught me that lobbyists are educators, yep. actually, and we need that. We need those educators because when you have a senator sitting there saying, oh, well, all flavors are bad, they all need to be banned, and you start really pressing that issue of, okay, so why do you think they need to be, be banned? Then you start hearing this really kind of nonsensical argument from the senator. And so that's the job of the lobbyist. The lobbyist's job is to educate that senator and say, no, no, here's where you're wrong and here's, here's what, where the real information lies. And it's their job to present the information to them, the correct information. And so why we need them so badly in the vaping industry is because our voices are honestly getting drowned out by all the NGOs and ants out there. I mean, you know that as well yeah. as I do. That they're, a very, they're very powerful organizations, nonprofits that have been around for 20-plus years, and we don't have that 20-plus years of experience behind our associations. So what we need to do is we need to rely on our lobbyists and our state associations to pay for those lobbyists to get in there and actually educate them. And you really need to pick a a lobbyist who has an excellent Rolodex because the more contacts that the lobbyist has, the more that they can spread the information that is correct. Yep. No, exactly. No, thank you. When I worked for a delegate, he explained it to me that they need them themselves, especially when you look at the background, especially the, I mean, they're part-time legislators. They got a, you know, a main job, but if they come from a legal background, they're not going to really know much about like a farm bill. So somebody needs to come in and explain it. Cause you're, yeah, you're always going to have both ends of the, you know, both sides of the aisle coming in and trying to influence or educate, you know, you, you know, how these people are going to vote and what they understand of whatever they're legislating. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's, and, and that's the, the one thing and, and that people don't understand about state trade associations. If you're, if you don't belong to a state trade association or if you don't have one, then you don't have a voice at the table. You really don't. And, and I think that you could probably explain to people more, more of that nature as well is that it's great when we always say that, 
you know, senators and House reps, they want to hear from their constituents in their district, right? Yeah. But if you've only got one or two of them reacting, then they're kind of like, eh, okay, well, that's one guy, and, and, and he's just complaining, or, or he's saying something about this vapor stuff, and, you know, it's just one guy. But if you have an entire association that's represented by over 100 members, for example, that's powerful. Yep. That's more powerful at the state house. Yep. Oh, yeah, or even, you know, well, 100 businesses in the street. You know, this is 100 businesses and all, you know, tax revenue. They're they're all looking for taxes. Right. <laughs> all right, well. Um, they do, don't they? They always. definitely pay attention to the tax line. Yeah. <laughs> so, which is great. You know, a- we'll be more than happy to give them tax members. So, so for sure. I, I know that I worked, I went down with you, I know, Indiana last year, you know, was looking at um, increasing the smoking age from 18 to 21. Thankfully, it didn't go anywhere. Um, what can we expect uh, coming out of Indiana and then also nationally um, next year? Um, I'm hoping that Indiana will be smart about a few things. I, when we did the governor's agenda and then recently I got a lobbyist report from us, we're not seeing anything at the moment, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to face the three major issues of tobacco 21, uh, taxes, and a uh, flavor ban. We're not saying that that's never going to come up, but so far, that's not on the on the legislative agenda for Indiana this year. So we're hoping to, to be very proactive when those things come up, and we absolutely have a plan in place with our lobby team. So um, and again, with flavors, we're absolutely going to focus on marketing when it comes to taxes. Look, man, you guys wiped us out two years ago, and we're just now recovering. Let's not even talk about taxes right now. Are you serious? I mean, we, we, we're not going to be able to afford a tax when, you got, when the market is just just now going into the black. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. And Tobacco 21, we will um, probably combine with some of our, our allies here with the sea store industry and the Grocers Association and Wholesale and Retailers Association, because none of them want Tobacco 21 either. So... I hear that Tobacco 21 will come up, but I'm not so sure it's got a lot of support. Um, hopefully, that's true. Um, but, you know, sessions, they um, anything and everything can happen. So we'll have to just see. And, I, you know, it, it's, as, as my lobbyist says, you know, we have no problem playing whack-a-mole. Let's do yeah. it. So <laughs> we'll definitely do that. Um, but throughout the other states, um, I'm afraid that what I'm seeing and why the 50-state joint defense program at BTA was so important is that's exactly what we saw. We saw that the a lot of states were getting impatient. A lot of state houses were saying, well, the FDA is not enforcing. They're not reacting on flavors. They're not reacting on T21 fast enough. So, and then especially with like the menthol ban, a lot of the state houses don't feel like that's going far enough for flavor bans. They would like all flavors. And as cities, same way, obviously, with San Francisco, um, Oakland and, and a lot of cities in California that are lining up as well as Sacramento. So we're going to see a lot of action, a ton of action um, that these state orgs are going to have to be on top of their game and they're going to have to lobby up and they're going to have to be professional and they're going to have to do it the professional way. Going down to the state house and rallying at third reading is not going to cut it because yeah. it will pass. Yeah. No. So, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, and yeah, no, you know, we, I follow all 50 states, the vaping issues, and yeah, they, the California does have the bill to, to ban flavors throughout the whole state. It's insane. They do. They do. I know. And that's, you know, and, and that makes me sad for California because I think of all the smokers in California. I don't know if you've been to California recently, but there's still, 
in in especially some of the minority neighborhoods in some of the um, locations that aren't financially uh, you know low income I guess you would call it yeah. they they still smoke heavily so sure they may not do they may not do it on Rodeo Drive you know in L A but they still or in Beverly Hills but they certainly do it in other parts of Orange County and I think that that's where you know, I think a lot of those people, and that's California politics in general, a lot of those folks get left out. Yeah. And, and this is just the, another way that they're leaving them out. They're saying, oh, well, we don't care if, if the minorities smoke. We don't care about their health at all. And that that's, I guess, the bigger health message for me is that not everybody in California um, does Pilates and yoga classes and, and runs every, you know, 2.5 miles every day, okay? <laughs> you know? So, yeah, well, I, I think that California misses the misses. I don't think they're connected with their folks. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's really never ironic too because yeah. the low income people are the one you know the and the, they're low income. They're the ones that are using the state's programs for health care. It's like wow. Well, you could reduce your health care costs right. if you let them vape. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's, there's so many reduction things they they could do. You're right, Lindsay. There's so many things. It, it's like they just don't see the problem that's right in front. The forest through the trees. It's right in front of them. The problem. Yeah. You know, but California likes to. It's California. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a whole different beast. Yeah. I'm glad I'm in a very conservative state of Indiana that doesn't like taxes and doesn't like big business overriding and likes independent. Yep. Uh, businesses with tax revenue yep so. yep no you <laughs> yeah. are fortunate on that one i'm in illinois you know how they, they we are like the california of the mid well us in minnesota minnesota is more like the california of the yeah Midwest. <laughs> yeah it, i you know in in fact you know flavor revolution we we'd put one of our factories um for flavor very specifically our, our vapor and our vapor and tobacco technologies factory is in portage indiana because i'll be honest the taxes are cheaper yep. <laughs> I mean, things are cheaper on this side of the pond versus Illinois. So. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay, so um, do you have any? I get it. <laughs> do you have any advice for our listeners? I think advice for the listeners is really pay attention to some of those finer details that the FDA has put out, like tobacco product master files, for example. On um, that flavor of revolution, we have tobacco product master files for anybody that is filing the PMTA, and to really understand that your gate, that these are gateways. These aren't something that you're going to be able to survive um, into 2022. And if you are making product and you knowingly making product that, um, you know, has questionable marketing on it or is 2020 is not, was not on the market as of 8-8-2016, um, you really are hurting the rest of the industry. You're not gaining anything. It's a short-term gain um, at the cost of, of the rest of us who are fighting for this category. And so I would like to, you know, encourage people to really get with consultants or get with other people that know better and, and just have conversations and please do not ignore the, the HPHCs. I remember Chris Howard at the VTA conference is the label on it was the early death of the vapor industry because this could be a killer. Yep. This could absolutely be a killer. These requirements are not easy. They don't, they're not something that you can think about last minute. Vapor companies need to be proactive. And um, I think the last thing is stop listening to all this Facebook and social media noise and fear. 
because fear only breeds more anger and angst and the inability to run your companies. Yep. So actually start looking at your company's valuation and start being business people and saying, what, how do I survive? Like if I'm a retail business, what products am I going to carry into 2020, you know, coming up for 2019 um, that, that are going to be something that is going to stick around and that I'm not going to have a fire sale on. Right. Um, And if you're a manufacturer, what things do you have to do as a manufacturer coming up in 2019 into 20 and actually into 2022, you should have a viable plan. You should have already talked to consultants. You should already have talked to lawyers yeah. and FDA experts who have come from this regulatory um, world. You should be talking to people like us because if not, then you're just going to get simply get left behind. That's what I worry about Lindsay is that there's so much misinformation out there and people are arguing over silly things and thinking those things are important when they're not refocused on their business Yeah, because that's, what's going to matter. That is. Yep. Exactly. That's my advice. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so where can our listeners find out more information about all the things you do, including the um, ISFA and BTA? So for Indiana Smoke Free Alliance, you can go on our website at www.iamsmokefree.org. For the Vapor Technology Association, you can go to www.vaportechnology.org. So either one. And so we have a lot of services that are free. And and this is one I want to push out there that I don't think a lot of people know. And again, we talk about flavors and we talked about marketing. We do have a marketing hotline actually. So, um, and it's basically an email address that you, like, say you are wondering whether your label is going to be looked at at the FDA as being childlike, or say that you're wanting to switch your labels, your packaging, or, or anything like that to be more FDA compliant. BTA offers this service for free, and you just have to email responsiblemarketing at vaportechnology.org, and somebody, a lawyer, um, from our team, we'll get back to you and break down every single thing about your marketing that either is fine or needs to be fixed um, to meet FDA regulations. So and that's a free service that that's a lot of people awesome. don't know. We have. And how can and that's available to anybody. And how can groups reach out to you to get involved with VTA, um, the state associations? Um, they can email me directly at um, president at in smokefree.org. I would be more than happy to work with any state trade association. I love all the trade associations I work with there. It's so much fun. I love this job. I can do this job all the time. <laughs> That's great. That's pretty awesome though, especially it's your like what, fifth job now that you added on? You're insane. I know, right? You're insane. But I want. <laughs> I know. I do want to thank you for taking time out of your really busy schedule to actually come and talk with me. Um, and I also want to thank our listeners for tuning into another episode of Voices of Vapors. For more podcasts, including more of the Voices of Vapors series, please visit Heartline.org or search for the Heartline Daily Podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. For more information on electronic cigarettes and tobacco harm reduction, please visit our alcohol and tobacco page at Heartland.org.